I'm so glad to be here with you guys today. We're in this series, if you didn't know, it's called Sunday School. How many of you guys went to school? You guys are already more awake than first service. I asked that and like no one raised their hand. I was like, okay, either you're asleep or wow, what is happening? What is going on? Was there an era of time where there was no schools, right? But um, you know, you guys, I don't know if you remember this. I don't even know if they still do this. But in school, when I was in school, you got your grades and then you got your citizenship report. How many of you guys got a citizenship report? Okay, so over a certain age, great, cool. Um, so uh, the citizenship report was like, you know, they're grading you on being on time, um, actually going to school, your attendance, and then how you acted in class. I got pretty good grades, you know? I wasn't a, a straight A student, but I was a mostly AB student, hey, all right, you know? And then, um, but my citizenship report was pretty sad, pretty sad. And every single report card had things like, your daughter needs to not talk during class. Please speak with your daughter about not interrupting class. Please talk to you, I've, I've warned you a few times, we've had this conversation, please ask your daughter to not talk in class, right? And I'm sure my parents read it and were like, if you told us how, we would, right? If we, if we could, we would. That's why she needs to go there for seven hours a day because she's talking our ears off, right? But you know, and I also have this funny little part of my personality where if something is, you know, like tense, you know, a little difficult situations, hard situations, it's like I can't stop myself from making a joke, right? Because, you know, the mood, the mood is heavy. Everyone will feel better if someone just tells a little joke. And I would like to say I've gotten better. I probably have. I probably only tell jokes now 80% of the time, you know, in those kind of situations, right? Now I have a tiny bit of wisdom. But, you know, when I was in junior high, this was also really when school shootings were a, a big deal. They were happening a lot. You guys are like, that got really sad really fast. I'm sorry. Okay. But so when I was in junior high, we had to start doing these drills where they taught you in case a shooter comes to school, this is what you're going to do. And so we're, you know, in the class and we're getting ready for our first drill. The teacher's telling us all about it. So obviously that's an intense moment. And I could not stop with the jokes. They were free flowing. It was too much material they were putting towards me. And I, I don't know, I just kept going. Finally, the teacher said, Bethany, get out. You have to sit in the hallway during this. And I'm like, oh, sorry, right? I always felt bad, you know, that I couldn't stop myself. So I go in the hall, you know, and they, they, they have this whole procedure. I'm gonna miss it, you know? So um, all, what they have to do is they, when the, the certain bells go off, all of the kids were supposed to move to one area of the classroom, and then the teachers were supposed to go and they open the door. I don't know why they do this part, but they open the door and they look in the hallway, and then they close the door and they barricade it in some way. So I'm out sitting in the hallway, you know, regretting every decision of my life. And um, I'm sitting out there all alone and the bells go off, right? It's time, you know? So I'm like experiencing this from a different place, you know? And then all of a sudden, one by one, um, the, the, the classroom, the doors keep opening and teachers keep looking out and when they see me, they're like, like, why are you out here by yourself? So finally I just stood up and I started going, I'm the decoy. I'm the decoy, right? Someone had to do it. It's me. But, you know, I don't, I don't know what, what school was like for you, but I, thought, I think it was pretty fun. And I hope that this series has been, been a good series for you. If, you. if you missed it two weeks ago, Pastor Jake talked about why we need 
Jesus. Maybe you've been around for a little bit. You're going to hear the name Jesus quite a bit. We're all about Jesus. You, you might even say we're obsessed with him, right? But he really talked about who Jesus claimed to be when he walked on this earth. What are the words that he said about himself? And then what was the character that he lived? And then what was the death that he died? And it's a beautiful message. And so I really encourage you, if you haven't heard the other messages in this series, they really are building. So I really encourage you to go back and listen to those. But this week, um, when, when we were talking about the theme, you know, this is the next theme in the book. This is the next topic, you know, as a team, like who's going to be the best at, at understanding this topic, the one who's lived this topic the most, the one who almost seems like they have like, you know, really given their life to this topic. And it was obvious. It was like definitely Bethany. And that topic is sin. Sin is our topic for today. How do you guys feel like, man, yeah, I'm an expert on sin. <laughs> You know, I might not know a lot about the Trinity. I might not understand, um, you know, ecclesiology, but sin, <laughs> I can help you with that, right? That's one that I, I didn't even have to go to school for. But that is what we're talking about today, is about sin. What is sin? We really only hear this word in church, right? It's not something that we hear anywhere else. When, when I would get in trouble in school, they weren't like, Bethany, you're sinning. It was like, Bethany, you're going to the principal's office or whatever, but that wasn't the consequence. So this is only a word that we really use in this context. And one of the definitions of the word sin is missing the mark, right? So if you're an archer, you know, you're, you're shooting that arrow and you miss. That's kind of what sin is. Hey, I was doing something, I missed it. I'm way off base. I didn't do it right. I missed the mark. And it's really important for us. We explored why we needed Jesus. Right? That's what Pastor Jake did for us a couple weeks ago. Why did we need Jesus? Why is he the answer, right? But now today, we're really going to talk about why we need a Savior. Why we need Jesus, right? Because it's easy for us to come to church and think, hey, if I add a little bit of Jesus in my life, I'm going to become a marginally better person. The world, our culture, shouts at us all the time that we're basically good anyways, right? Right? So we just need a little boost, you know, or I just need a little bit of self-help or I just need, but that's actually not what Jesus was for. In fact, we needed a savior, which means we needed someone to save us. We weren't just needed a step. We didn't just need a step up. We needed someone to come all the way down and help us out of the depth of where we are. And that's really what we're going to be looking into today. I'm going to read a very long quote to you. And so just Lean in, focus, you got this, all right? It's hard when someone reads. I don't usually read one this long, but it's so good, okay? The, the 19th century saw a flourishing of liberal optimism. I said this in first service. I want to say it here. Sometimes we see words that now in today's culture, we only think of politics. But words had meanings before politics. And so, you know, if immediately you saw that word and it triggered something, let it go, okay? It's not meaning what you're thinking, it's meaning, okay? This was not written by an American, it was written by a British person and a long time ago. So anything you think I'm trying to say, I'm not, okay? E even if I am, I'm probably not. Okay, the 19th century saw a flourishing of liberal optimism. It was widely believed that human nature was fundamentally good, that evil was largely caused by ignorance and bad housing, and that education and social reform would enable people to live together in happiness and goodwill. We see this now, huh? If we can just make society better, it'll all work out. But this illusion has been shattered by the hard facts of history. 
Educational opportunities have spread rapidly throughout the world, and many welfare states have been created. But our human capacity to get it wrong seems undaunted. Isn't that a powerful statement? Like, that's my Monday. My human capacity to get it wrong is undaunted. The persistence of conflict on the world stage and the widespread denial of human rights, together with the general increase of violence and crime, have forced thoughtful people to acknowledge that a hard core of selfishness exists in each and every one of us. Nearly all legislation has grown up because we simply cannot be trusted to settle our disputes with justice and without self-interest. A promise is not enough. We need a contract. Doors are not enough. We have to lock and bolt them. The payment of fares is not enough. Tickets have to be issued, inspected, and collected. Law and order are not enough. We need the police to enforce them. All of this is due to our sin. We cannot trust one another. We need protection against one another. It is a terrible indication of what human nature is really like. You see, a lot of times we have great ideas of how to make things better on the outside. But the truth is, is if you're a Christian, we realize things will only be changed when we change on the inside. The problem is not out there. The problem is inside of us. The problem is in who we are. And, and thank God, God actually gave us a standard. He gave us a standard of living, right? He said, this is the way you should live. And what my goal is for us today is to be able to look at that standard and to be able to see how bad we're doing at it. Doesn't that sound encouraging? When Jake was like, you do the this, this sin one. I was like, thank you. I, I'm so happy that you gave me the sad one, right? Um, but yeah, we, we look at the standard that God has set for us and we realize like, man, I'm falling short. The Bible says all have fallen short. So don't worry, you're in great company, right? We have all fallen short of this standard. We're actually gonna look at the 10 commandments. I'm sure you're familiar with the 10 commandments. Um, I was remembering, I, I used to be like a kid's counselor when I was a teenager at kid's camps. And um, one of the, one of the, speakers taught all of the children and me how to remember the Ten Commandments forever. And it was like these little hand symbols. I'm going to show you today. I know you guys are excited about that. But from now on, you'll have memorized the Ten Commandments. And, um, but as an adult, I think like, what a funny thing to have kids memorize. Like I would have gone with other scriptures, but I know those Ten Commandments now. So that's good. But um, we're going to look at the Ten Commandments. Um, I'm going to read this quote from John Stott. He says, only then, after we clearly grasped what we are, shall we be in a position to perceive the wonder of what he does for us and what he offers to us. We need to be convinced of the accuracy of the diagnosis before we will be ready to take the medicine that God prescribes. Right? We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about what he's done. We're talking about the work that he did for us. But if we don't truly believe we need it, then what's the use? We have a doctor who's saying, this, you're sick, here's the medicine. But until we really are able to say, I am sick, will we be able to take that medicine? And so we're going to look through each and every one of these. And I just want you to know the standard is higher than you think. God is interested not only in your behavior, but the thought and the motive behind your behavior. 
So the first one in Exodus 20, the first uh, commandment, you can use it with one finger, right? You can, this is the very first one, you can use your one finger, and it's, you shall have no other God before me. You shall have no other God before me. This is what God says. Or another way of saying it is put God first, right? Put God first. And at first we think about this, and it's not too hard. I can say really easily that I put God first, right? That one check, right? But do you actually put God first in your life? Do you actually put him before anything else? You can look at how you spend your time. You can look at how you spend your money. You can look at how your relationships are, right? And you can begin to see if you put God first. We actually break this commandment whenever we give someone or something other than God the first place in our thoughts or affections. Man, I do that all the time. That's hard. You know, the first thing when I wake up in the morning, I don't think about God. I think about coffee. You know? And usually, Jake usually wakes up first, so usually I can already smell that he's made his coffee, right? We have like, you know, where you make your own, like espresso. And so I can, it's already in the air, you know, that heavenly aroma, right? Wait, I'm not putting my first thoughts, my first affections. It immediately goes to something else, right? It's so easy to break through that one. The second one, you can go like this with your fingers, number two. It's like someone bowing down. And why? It's because you shall, have no, uh, you shall make no graven image. You shall make no graven image. This means don't make an idol, right? This one immediately, in our culture, we're like, no problem. Never done it, don't plan to. You know, it would be so odd if I was like, hey, Kyle, hey, I was at that pottery place on Oakway. I made this awesome little thing. I'm worshiping it now. You know, he'd be like, cool, cool, cool. I'm going to call some people to pick you up, um, right? Because that's not the context that we live in. But what, what is God really saying there? He's saying, worship only me. Only worship me. I'm the only thing worth worshiping. You're only allowed to worship me. And you know, there's another verse in the Bible that says, you worship in spirit and in truth. Remember, we're looking at the motives. So maybe today you came in and you sang the song and you maybe clapped your hands and you maybe even lifted your hands, but you never actually engaged with God. You never actually set your heart towards him. You never actually quieted all of the intrusive thoughts and focused yourself on him. Because God doesn't only require, or he doesn't only ask for our worship, like just show, look like you are worshiping. He says, worship me in spirit and in truth. That you actually in truth worship him. The first commandment is about what we worship. The second commandment is about how we worship. We are told to worship God in spirit and in truth. It's not enough to look like we worship him. In Mark uh, 7, 6, you find it here. This is what Jesus says. He says, he's talking, he's actually referencing Isaiah, but he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's what God is talking about. Worship only me. Let your heart be close to me. The third one, you use three fingers and you can just shh. That's what that one is for. It says, do not take the name of the Lord God in vain, right? Don't take the name of the Lord God in vain. Or I love saying it this way. There's just something about that name. 
There's just something about the name of Jesus. Now we all, we know what this means. This means like when you say, use God's word as a cuss word, right? We hear that all the time. You watch any sort of show or maybe on your way out, you stub your toe, whatever it is. But we, it's so easy to take the name of God in vain. And you know what? Honestly, I don't really hear people taking any other God's name in vain. You guys notice that? You're a Christian, you're secular, you don't know anything about Jesus and yet you're gonna curse with his name. Why is that? It's because there is something about the name of Jesus. We were singing that song earlier. What a beautiful name it is. There is power in the name of Jesus. It holds weight. There isn't power in the name of Buddha. There isn't power in the name of Allah. There isn't power in those other things because those are not the one true God, but there is something about the name of Jesus. And that is what God is talking about here. He says, don't use this name in vain. There is power in the name of Jesus. I remember different times my kids, you know, they go to bed at night and you're like, you have to go to sleep, right? And they're, but they get scared, you know, I'm scared, I'm scared of this. And I always tell them, say the name of Jesus. Why? Because there's power in the name of Jesus. And I know that if they will cry out to him, he will be right there, right? And they won't have fear, right? And also, you know, then Jesus can help them. So they go to sleep. That's a joke. There's something about the name of Jesus. But you know what? It's more than that. It's, not, it's more than just not using his name cavalierly. You see, if you are a Christian, what that word actually means is Christ-like. That you are trying, right, to be like Christ. That you are carrying the name of Christ. And so we actually use the name of Jesus in vain when we, we say we're Christian and we don't act like him. Because we're carrying that name, but we're not living that name. When our behavior is inconsistent with our belief, when what we do contradicts what we say, we take God's name in vain. What's the fourth one? Number four, use two fingers in each hand. You make a little church here. I know you guys are loving this. Thank you. I know. I can tell. But that's a, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You're making a little church. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Or in other words, seek rest in God. When God created the earth, right, he created, he worked for six days. And on that seventh day, he rested, not because God was tired, because he was exemplifying what we are to be like. That we are to take one day where we rest, where we stop working, where we stop that forward motion in our life, and we just rest in who God is in what he's done, that we bask in how great he is, that we take that day and we rest. You know, the truth is rest, especially I think in the Christian world can almost be a sin, right? It's all about how busy you are. It's all about what you're doing, how you're moving, how you're hustling. But that's not what God says. Rest is not a sin to God. In fact, not resting is the sin. He says, remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. You need to rest in me. You aren't holier than rest. Number five, this one you have to give someone high five, right? High five. It's honor your father and mother. Or another way to say it is who is the boss, right? Who is the boss? And, um, you know, on this one, maybe you say, I, I didn't have a good father or mother or both, right? How am I supposed to honor them? You know, I've worked with a lot of people who have been shattered by who their natural mother or father were from the betrayals, from the hurt, from the pain. Now, how can I possibly honor my father and mother? And one thing I always say is, what's the one thing that they did do for you? They gave you life. If that's literally the only thing, right, that they ever did, right, 
then you can honor them. But this is actually more than just honoring your natural father and mother. It's also about honoring authority. When we're kids, that's our first authority in our life. Honor them. And this is actually the first commandment that has a blessing on it. The, the scripture actually says, honor your father and mother that you may have long life. Well, what a beautiful promise. If you will honor the authority around you, the authority that God has put in your life, that God has placed, he says, I will give you long life. Do you honor the authority in your life? Number six, you, uh, you know, make this finger into a gun. Don't put that on Facebook. And then you, this hand right here, you shoot it. Okay, so that's number six. That's a fun one. Um, it's thou shalt not murder. Hey, guys, don't you feel like, hey, I'm doing good. Those ones were heavy. I'm not doing well on those. But you know what? In 30 years, I have, I have not murdered anyone. Pretty proud, right? I really haven't even gotten to a context where it was possible, you know? Like some of these crime shows, you're like, I, I don't even understand how this came to your thoughts, but cool, okay, well, you know? But yeah, thou shalt not murder. It seems like, okay, good, fine. One I can pass, one I can do. Another way to say this is life is sacred. Life is sacred. The first five commandments are really all about our position to God. And these last five are really all about our, the way we treat each other. So don't murder each other. So God says, please stop murdering each other. But it's actually way more than that. In 1 John 3.15, he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him, meaning Jesus is not in him. So Jesus flipped this right? A lot of the, what, some of the things when you're reading about Jesus's life, when you're reading the gospels and he's getting so mad at those Pharisees and you're like, I don't, well, the Pharisees were really bad. No, they were religious and they were so sure they had it right because they were following the letter of each law. And Jesus kept flipping it on them. He said to them, even when you want, when, even when you hate your neighbor, it's just as if you have murdered them. Thou shalt not murder means you can't even hate other people. You can't even hate others. All right, number seven. This is uh, the mom and dad, and here are their five children. Those of you guys with small children are like, five? Why five? That's because it's number seven. Okay, so this do not commit adultery. Thou shall not commit adultery, or another way of saying that is keep marriage intact, right? God, he's serious about marriage. He's serious about that. And so he says, don't commit adultery. But this one, Jesus turned on its head too. He said on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, even when you look at someone lustfully, you have already committed adultery, right? He's not only, he doesn't only care about what we do, right? Physically, he actually cares about what you think, about how you feel, what you're thinking about doing, what you're wanting to do. He cares about your motivations. This commandment is all about keeping all sexual activity inside of the covenant of marriage. And so when we look at another person who is not our spouse with lust in our heart, with lust in our head, we are committing adultery. This, is, this envelops all of these kind of sexual things, including, you know, pornography, including uh, like fantasy living inside of your head, any of those things. God cares about that. And he says, don't do it. People that aren't yours, they're not in your marriage, you can't lust after other people. Number seven, I'm sorry, number eight. Number eight, you put up, th you know, five, and then you go, oh. Wow, you guys are very amazed at my magic tricks. 
Okay, number eight, it, thou shalt not steal. You guys see the three, you got stolen. Okay, thou shalt not steal. Or is possession really nine-tenths of the law, right? Right, this is all about how we're dealing with other people. We need to not hate other people. We can't lust after other people and we can't steal from other people. God cares about how you treat every person you come in contact with. He cares about it. He cares about how you treat others. So we don't steal from other people. Number nine, it says, uh, oh, I'm sorry, number nine. This is, you put up nine, you say, it's almost 10, right? It's almost 10. It's thou shalt not bear false witness about your neighbor or tell the truth. You need to tell the truth. It's so important that when we deal with people that we tell the truth, that we don't lie to people, that we don't trick people, that we tell the truth. The Bible actually says in Psalms, David wrote it, he said, you desire truth in my inmost parts. Meaning you want me to live in truth. Like don't even think lies about other people. This includes gossiping about other people. This includes listening to lies about other people. This includes guile. I don't know if you know what guile is, but it's when you know the truth and someone is talking about it and you don't offer the truth, right? Don't lie. You need to tell the truth. And number 10, you made it through. Number 10 is this way. You know, it's all mine. It's um, thou shall not covet. And really what's this saying is be content. Be content. Covet is probably one of the ones that we mostly do all day long, right? You scroll Instagram and you see a perfect house. You see a perfect recipe. You see a perfect family. You see a perfect life. You see a perfect business. You see someone, you know, making it rain with their money, whatever it is. And we see it and we say, I want it. I want it. I want that, right? We see the neighbor's perfect lawn and we say, ah, I want that. I don't want to work for it though, right? What's God saying? He's saying, you need to be content. You need to be content. Maybe you come to church and you see people getting married and finding their perfect mate younger and younger and younger, right? And you're like, right? No, God's saying, no, you need to be content. You need to be content with what you have. You can't covet other people's lives, other people's things, right? This is all about how we treat other people. We don't hate them. We don't lust after them. We don't take from them. We don't lie about them. And we don't even just want what they have. All right? So we've gone through those 10 commandments. And maybe you're sitting here today and you say, this is a bummer. I've really done poorly. Listen, we've all done poorly. We all do poorly at these. And that's what Jesus was trying to say, right? He was saying, you guys are so prideful. You think you've done so well and you haven't. You all have done poorly. You guys have done bad at this standard. And so maybe you're like, okay, we all did bad. So who cares? If we all are failing, you know, we need to be graded on a curve, right? I hated that in school. <laughs> okay, I won't even get into it, but I don't want to be graded on a curve. You know, there's a reason there's a standard and there's actually some consequences to sinning. There's some consequences when we sin. And so that's what we're going to talk about right now. And the first consequence of our sin is that it alienates us from God. It separates us from God. It moves us away from God. And maybe you say, well, okay, is that really that bad? You know, I know I'm supposed to love God, but if I've already failed this miserably and it separates, you know, maybe I could just have a good life here. No, it does matter. 
You see, you were created by God for God. And so even though every single one of us was born into this sinful world, into this sinful place, we still know the presence of God. You know, Jesus, when he was um, being beaten, when he was falsely accused, when he was on this road to being crucified, he never opened his mouth. He never, you know, like yelled out at the people. They say that when they lashed him, right? They gave him those, those 39 lashes. It was a really big deal. They say that they probably could have seen literally the bones in his back by the time they were done. We just heard a speaker this week who was saying they actually believe you could have been able to see his kidneys at this point. This is a broken person. You know, uh, Pastor Jake, he always reminds us that he's been to Israel, right? He's just like, I've been to Israel. But one of the things he said that was so interesting was we always see the picture of this cross on this big hill and people, you know, going up to it. But he said it was actually where they say he was crucified. It's just the side of the road because they were trying to make it the most humiliating thing they could. So here's just this road where everyone will see you naked, broken, ashamed, and hopefully they hope begging for their life. But we don't see, when we read the gospels, we don't see Jesus crying out. We don't see him crying against the people. We don't see anything until he says these words. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what we believe in that moment was that God literally took his presence away from Jesus, right? So that the wrath of the sin, of all the punishment, of all the sin that all of us could not pay, the mark that we cannot meet, that Jesus was taking all of that onto himself and so that God removed himself and then looked away. And that was what Jesus almost couldn't handle, was being alienated from God. Being alienated from God is a horrible consequence, one that none of us would be able to stand. In Isaiah uh, 59, one through two, Jake read this just a couple weeks ago. It says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities or sin have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The more that we sin, the more that we keep making mistakes, the more that we just, or even willfully, keep going back to sin, the further and further and further we move away from God, the bigger the chasm that we make. A consequence of our sin is an alienation from our creator. The second thing is a bondage to self. The second consequence of sinning is a bondage to self you know, we, we live in America, and one of the biggest things that we pride ourselves on is our freedom, right? Proud to be American. At least I know I'm free. You know, you see the shirts, freedom isn't free, right? All of these things, bald eagle, whatever. Um, but the truth is, even if you're born an American, you're not free. You were never born free. The Bible repeatedly tells us that we're all slaves to sin. And that's one of the consequences of sin is the more that we sin, the more enslaved we become to it. The Apostle Paul, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament of the Bible, just this amazing church planter, church leader, church father, incredible. If anyone you know has got this sin thing down, you gotta think it's Paul, right? And yet he even said, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I do. 
And that's all of us. That we say, I, I'm ready, I'm ready on a Sunday morning, I'm ready, I'm ready to live right, I'm ready to get better, I'm ready to, and then we get on the belt line and it all goes out the window, <laughs> right? And we're doing things we didn't want to do and we can't stop doing things that we don't want to do. Why? Because we're slaves to sin. We're enslaved into this nature. In John 8, 34, Jesus even says this to us. He says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the more we sin, the more enslaved we are. John Stott said, it is no use giving us rules about how to behave. We cannot keep them. However much God might say, you shall not, we shall. Right to the end of time. A lecture will not solve our problem. We need a savior. We need a savior. And the last thing, the last consequence of sin is conflict with others. How many of you guys have ever been in a conflict with someone else? We are just constantly in conflict with others. You know, we, we at our house, we bought our house about five years ago. We bought a conflict with someone else. We have a, a conflict with a neighbor we inherited. We, before they ever knew us, they hated us, right? Like we inherited a conflict. We, we've been working on it for years to try to not have a conflict anymore. But that's something that sin does. Why? Because sin at its core is us being selfish. And we don't love others when we're selfish. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have turned the page. It says, while sin draws into itself, love spins itself for others. The characteristic of sin is the desire to get. The characteristic of love is the desire to live. Sin at its core is self-seeking. You can't live peacefully with others when you only serve yourself. And yet that's what we do when we sin, is we're serving ourselves, And so it creates conflict with everyone around us. You know, I know this is a heavy message, right? But it's so important for every single one of us to see what the reality really is. If God is saying, you need a savior, we need to get to a place where we can see for ourselves, I need a savior. Faith is actually born out of need. That it's not until we really see our great need for God that we really truly have faith and in him that he has the power to save us from our problem. In Mark 2:17, Jesus, he actually says this. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. God didn't use this huge elaborate plan of sending his son down to the earth to live this perfect life just so that he could gather people who were already perfect and then have his church. What he was saying is, you guys have messed it up. You guys are all sick. But here's the answer. Here's the answer. There is a savior, right? And it's so important that we get to a place in our walk with the Lord where we realize I am desperate for a savior. I don't need just a little message to help me get one step better. I don't need, I wasn't almost there and I needed just a little bit of help making it. No, I was dead in my sin. I was a slave to this sin and I needed a savior to come and to save me. And that's what Jesus did. 
I love this quote, I don't have it on the board, but it says, sin has separated us from God. But Christ wanted to bring us back to God, so he suffered for our sins, an innocent Savior dying for guilty sinners, and he did it just once, decisively, so that he didn't have to, it cannot be repeated, it cannot be improved upon, it cannot be supplemented. What Christ did for you on the cross is all that we need. It's us saying, I am a sinner in need of a savior. And so I'll also accept you not only as my savior, but as my king. I will also accept your lordship into my life. And you know, like I told in the story in the very beginning, how when I got in trouble in school, I was sent out of class. And maybe that's the way that you were raised, that when you did something wrong, you were sent away, that you were separated from the family, you were separated from your parents. And that is not the way that God deals with us. It's not the way that God deals with us. He doesn't say, you're a sinner, you have to go away, you have to go to timeout. In fact, Jesus, when he walked on this earth, he had 12 men, 12 disciples as his closest guys, right? He shared his life with them for three years. And one of those guys was Judas Iscariot. So if you're not familiar, this is the guy who literally sold Jesus for money. And it actually says that Jesus knew he was a thief. And yet Jesus put him in charge of the money. Why is that? Because Jesus was saying, here's a chance. I'm gonna give you a chance, Judas. I'm gonna give you a chance. I'm not gonna send you away. I'm gonna draw you close. And even the night they say that Judas was about to betray Jesus, Jesus knows Judas is gonna betray him. And Judas is beginning to realize that Jesus knows. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, go and do what is in your heart, friend. Still, my friend. And that's the same way God is with you. He's not sending you away. He already knows we are all broken. We are all sinners. And he doesn't say, you have to stay over there. You have to stay out. He says, draw close to me. The Bible literally says, if you will draw close to him, he will draw close to you. He promises you that. He doesn't want to push you far away. He says, come close, friend. Come close, friend. You know, I was like trying to figure out what do you do with this, right? Because I I can't move on to the next chapter and spoil it, right? That's next week. We can't leave people in this, right? And so I was, you know, I messaged Judah early and I said, let's do some worship at the end. Let's do some worship. We're going to stand together and we're going to sing to God and we're going to thank him for how awesome he is, for how wonderful he is, that he gave us salvation that he gave us a savior, that he didn't look at us in our filth and say, that's it, I'm leaving. He said, no, I wanna draw you close. I wanna bring you in. And so if you would just stand to your feet right now, we're gonna sing this song. I'm going to pray for everyone. Jesus, we just thank you so much, God, for the work that you did for every single one of us on the cross, Lord. Lord, we are saying in this room that we see our sin. We see that we do not meet up to the standard, and we're just so grateful for you, God, that you said, I will make a way where there is no way. Jesus, we love you. We thank you, God, that you did make a way when there was no other way. Awesome. Thank you, Jesus. You know, right now, if you just take your seats, we're going to just kind of stay in this atmosphere. And if you guys just take your seats and close your eyes, bow your heads. And one of the things that we talked about today was that sin makes you a slave. And one of the things that the Bible talks about, well, what Jesus did for us was that he broke that yoke of slavery. And that's what that song is even talking about, that Jesus, you set me free. What happens is when we say, God, I am a mess. 
but I know I am a sinner in need of a savior. And so I accept that gift you've given me, that gift of salvation, my only hope. And God, you're not only my savior, but I'm gonna make you my king. I invite you to be Lord over my life. When we do that, that's what we talk about, about becoming a Christian, is that we're inviting Jesus into our life, into our heart, into who we are, and we're saying, God, I wanna live like you. And if you're in this room and you've never asked Jesus to be your savior, you've never made him your king, I wanna give you that opportunity right now. And if you're watching online, the same thing, I wanna give you that opportunity right now. So if you would, if you would just lift up your hand, if you're saying, I want to live for Jesus, I want to give the Lord my life, just lift up your hand right now. You know, I heard something really interesting this week. Thank you. And they just said, you know, it's easy if you just make a decision in your mind. It's easy for you to doubt it later. Did I really do that? But it's when we raise our hand, we can't forget it. That was that moment that I said, Jesus, I need you. And even if you're watching online, I really encourage you, lift up your hand. Maybe no one's there, no one can see you, but you will know. I put my faith in Jesus that day. I'm not gonna forget it. Right now we're gonna just pray a prayer. I'm gonna ask you to repeat after me. It's not, you know, this perfect prayer or this magic prayer. It's just a way for us to verbalize that there is a God, we're not him, and we need him, right? So if everyone in the room, if you will just repeat after me, Jesus, Jesus, I see today how, fall, how, how far I've fallen short, how much I can't make it. God, I'm a sinner, but I'm so thankful for you. Thank you for saving me. Jesus, forgive me for the people that I've hurt, the wrong that I've done, the standard I couldn't keep. Thank you for giving me life. Thank you for taking this heart of stone and giving me a new heart of flesh. God, I am no longer a slave to sin. I'm making you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.